You're listening to the horror. Welcome to the horror. I'm Russell Sharman. I'm Owen Edgerton. We're two film nerds. One of us loves horror. And the other not so much. And one of us is correct, which is me. (laughs) Okay, so today... Today, we're talking about The Thing. John Carpenter's The Thing. Yes, and I am and was very excited to talk about this movie because despite rumors to the contrary, I'm a big fan of John Carpenter. Big Trouble in Little China, oh. one of my favorites. Escape from New York. Yes. Had that on repeat when I was like 13. Ah. So, big fan. Okay. And, uh, well, we'll get into it, but uh, yeah. I think I may have needed to be 13 when I saw the thing. <laughs> oh, damn. Damn it. Damn it. I thought this one I thought this one would win you over. Well, my goodness. Okay, well let's let's give a quick introduction to the thing for for I, mean, I imagine anyone listening uh, who has a heart has seen this film. But of course you hadn't seen this film and um and you you make movies. Uh, well I and it, I it, admittedly a blind spot. Uh, it was one of those that I was embarrassed that I had not seen. It comes up in conversation and I quietly drift away to the fruit punch because <laughs> I am embarrassed. Okay, well uh, 1982 film The Thing. Uh, it was actually a remake of The Thing from Out of Space, um, which actually, interesting enough, that the initial movie, Howard Hawks movie, makes an appearance in the in, in the background in Halloween. It's what the kids are watching in Halloween, huh. which is interesting. Uh, and it was written by Bill Lancaster, not written by uh, by Carpenter, and came out in 1982 and did. Horribly, did really, really bad. Um, it was a big hiccup in Carpenter's career. Lost him being able to do his version of uh, Firestarter, Stephen King's Firestarter. Okay. Huh. Kind of got kicked off the, the uh, project after that. Um, but then, of course, when it came out on VHS, people started reappraising it. It became very popular. So it's, it's recognized by many people as uh, one of the best sci-fi horror films of all time. For me personally, it's my favorite of the John Carpenter of John Carpenter's films. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that is I, bold talk. It is bold talk. Uh, and I, yeah, I think it's brilliant. And, and for those of you guys who don't know, it's a story of uh, an American base in Antarctica which is uh, infiltrated by a shape-shifting alien that basically can take the form of any creature, human or otherwise, and is, uh, is trying to take over. Um, there's a lot of paranoia. There's a lot of uh, cold ice and isolation. Uh, there's a lot of uh, suspecting those around you, which I guess is paranoia. And it's just freaking brilliant. There's also a lot of alcohol. <laughs> there, there is a lot of alcohol, Yeah, which is perfectly understandable. In Antarctica, uh, you, let me let me say a few things. Okay, uh, up top about this movie. Okay, first of all, I settled in, was excited. Uh, again, I'm a fan of John Carpenter's. Uh, I, I like many of his of his films, and you know that that synth erupts on the soundtrack with those opening couple of credits, and I'm thinking, all right, all right, finally. Finally, three episodes in, ah. you know we're gonna we're gonna ha- we're gonna break the structure of our podcast because this is gonna be good, and and then and then I saw the spaceship, <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, oh crap, <laughs> and you know I, I will say that d- despite that that hiccup in the beginning, it's better written than most of the the movies that I have seen in this genre. I think the writing is really strong, mostly around this more philosophical question 
about paranoia and who, do you, who can you trust? Can you even trust yourself? I mean, those are really interesting questions. Whether or not the film applies them consistently, we can discuss. But I thought thematically that was really interesting. Cinematography is fantastic. It's brilliant. Yep. Yep. Frankly. Um, maybe they're playing fast and loose a little bit with night and day in Antarctica. I'm not sure. 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 I'm not a geologist uh, but or geographer or weatherman. But, you know, and this is, you know, I think I texted you right after I watched it and asked if slimy puppets are meant to be scary. And I get that 1982, it's not like we had the best technology and I'm the first to stand up for practical effects. Are you the first? I don't know if you're the first, but okay. Well, I was the first. No, (laughs) but you know, I'm a purist when it comes to Star Wars and feel the the overdone CGI has sort of ruined that series for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, but here, it just sucked the life out of the movie. I mean, I, and it took me out of it. Uh, mm. As grotesque as the puppets were, they were still puppets. I completely disagree with nearly everything you just said. Uh, <laughs> you mean the good writing and no, the great no, cinematography? No. <laughs> that part I agree. Um, I mean, let's let's go. I, I will say I'm gonna I'm gonna give you that spaceship at the very beginning. We, we usually get to the end when you ask me like, is there any you know moment you don't like? And personally, I wish we did not see the spaceship at the very very beginning of the film. I I I think I think it would just be much more interesting to basically start out with the first action being a helicopter chasing a dog. But a very extended sequence, by the way. It's pretty extended, and and I'm glad you like the score. You know, of course, uh, usually the score is Carpenter in a Carpenter film, right? And it, I assumed this was no. It's more oh. Connie. Oh, of course. You know what? Yeah. Now that you say that, I saw his name pop up in those opening credits. Yeah. And that was another signal to me, this is going to be good. Right. And Be- I, before the space. I love the score. And supposedly, I, I just heard, and I hadn't heard this before, but as I was researching for this, I just heard that Mark Honey, uh, he had scored a lot more music for The Thing. And The Thing's pretty sparse in, in music. The, there's a lot of uh, just sort of that isolated feeling that the only sound is the wind outside the doors. But supposedly Mark Honey used a lot of what he didn't use in The Thing, what Carpenter ended up cutting out, for The, uh, the Hateful Eight. Oh, really? I, I don't know if that's true, but that's that's what I, I heard. Kurt Russell being the, the light motif, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Well, Hateful is actually known as a prequel to the thing. A lot of people don't didn't catch that but it's there so and and then and then the special effects i mean i'll tell you the, the special effects on the thing some people are like oh my gosh it's just some of the best ever and then some people are like oh my gosh it's, it's slimy puppets i i think it's some of the best ever so rob Bowden did the work on that and it's just incredible no wait, I, wait 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 yes let's contextualize okay when you say best ever are you sure you're not saying best ever for the time period and the limits of technology at the time? Mm, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Like if I'm watching if I'm watching the original King Kong, I'm like, oh my gosh, these effects are groundbreaking. But that ground has been broken now in several different ways. But if you ask me, do I prefer the body horror special effects in The Thing to, I don't know, uh, a more recent movie like the special effects uh, in, I don't know, Transformers? I'm not sure. I would say The Thing. Um, I, you know, the, the, well, I would agree with you there because yeah. <laughs> not a big fan of Michael Bay, but yes. I'm not going to, you know, I, I don't need to poop on another person's film. They worked hard. Uh, <laughs> this is all I do is poop on films. <laughs> So, <laughs> um, but, 
but I, I love the effects. I, I love, I mean, the, the, the thing that they find in the Norwegian base, just that thing that's been burned and has two faces with the tongue going from one mouth to the other, that is terrifying. And, and every time I see it, it terrifies me. The whole uh, uh, scene within the dog chamber, which I actually believe was Stan Winston who did that because I believe Rob Bolton was sort of taking a break, but I think most of those effects are done by him, though he's not credited. But that dog sequence is incredible. Now, I'm not going, oh my gosh, they must have gotten a real alien. But it just, it works <laughs> in, for me like an incredible way. Like, it, I love it. And then the, the sequence uh, where where the guy's head kind of rips off him and, and becomes a spider, for me, that, that image there was, is an early image of initially watching this film that, that moment when the legs kind of come out of the head and it starts crawling away mm. and you know the, the one of the characters like you've got to be fucking kidding me that that done like you you win me forever there and i think those effects look great um i'm sure there's probably effects that you're like wow i i, I couldn't even tell special effects were being done but for me i'm like i don't know it's it's hard to beat well Again, and I and I am serious when I say I think I should have seen this when I was 13. In the same way that if I had not watched Star Wars until now, I probably would also say I don't understand what's the what's the big deal? What's yeah. the, where's the hype? Uh, it, there's a certain romance I think we have with those those movies we watch at a younger age when we're more forgiving. We haven't seen as much, and things can make an impression upon us. And this goes back to something we've talked about in the previous two episodes, just the, the, the evolution of cinematic language, both as a culture, but also as individuals, we become inured to advances in technology and it, we, need more, we need more and more input to really wow us. And I think that was my problem here. Now, having said that, the head turning into a spider or whatever you want to call that creature uh, was both a, are you fucking kidding me moment in a kind of eye rolly way, but also a kind of that's the most terrifying thing I've ever oh, okay. seen. <laughs> At yeah, least conceptually. So did, what what didn't work for you there? Was was it the fact that you like I, I can I, and I, I know when you, you, you teach, uh, you, you talk about film being a magic show and that we, the audience, want to be fooled and, and that that's part of the magic of it. But so where did the magic trick fail here? Was it because you could, you could see the strings? Right. Yeah. There's, I think there's something about the, the kind of pla the, the practical effects that, again, I appreciate that have a kind of lifeless quality, its own sort of uncanny valley that when you see a head upside down on spider legs it it looks like a rubber mask on on spider legs now the way it skitters across the floor terrifying uh, conceptually that is to say like the idea that it's presenting me is also terrifying and creepy and would probably stay with me if it wasn't balanced by that same sense of oh i see the strings <gasps> good idea john but i you know it doesn't it didn't scare me now there are moments and, and, and certainly the, the spider legs was one. Or when, <laughs> when Wilford Brimley sticks his fingers into that guy's yes. face. Amazing, amazing. That was another one that, that was conceptually terrifying. And I didn't see the strings as well. Uh, I mean, of course, I, I knew that wasn't actually happening. And this is a constant battle you play with suspending disbelief. But, but it was seamless, the, that effect. Uh, and was, in, in, in a sense, much more subtle than a lot of the others. 
but somehow more affecting because of that. <clears throat> okay, I can see that. I, it, it, there's an interesting thing there, and and you know, I, I I remember reading that John Carpenter himself was a little worried about. He's it. like, oh my gosh, I, I just don't know. Are people going to laugh at these effects? People are going to you know, um, yeah, just to laugh. And and you look back at the f- films that John Carpenter had made before, and he had made Halloween, Dark Star, Halloween, uh, The Fog, and Escape from New York. So. Ex- all these films, you know, Halloween being a great example, he made uh, on a shoestring budget. He's like, oh, you know who what my monster is? It's just a guy in a mask. It's just, you know, it's a it, it's a William Shatner mask turned inside out. It's as simple as you can get, and that makes it all the more scary. And that was part of his philosophy. It was like the evil, the ambiguous evil, the evil that you know, the monster that even if we see it, it doesn't tell us anything. There's something initially or uh, uh, sort of. Uh, naturally scary about but then he made this one and then this one it's without any camp that you know has escaped from new york it's or definitely uh big trouble little china like no camp whatsoever it is it like you see this creature in all these different forms so it could be anything for me i i'm not i'm not at all worried by um, being able to see some of the strings any more than I can hear the scratches on an original Louis Armstrong album. Like, of course I can hear the scratches. And in some ways, maybe for me, and I don't mean nostalgia, because of course I wasn't alive when Louis was recording, but I do mean, I, I do feel it's time. Uh, and, and that's okay by me. I, have, I don't have a problem with that. Um, any more than I can see the the... Uh, fingerprints on Kong in the initial film like that 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 is part of its time but for me it, it still works a, a, a film is not trying to trick me into thinking it's real I, I don't buy that concept as much as a film is expressing a narrative in this form I think that's right and I and I can appreciate that and if I think of it in those terms I think that's why I ended the film you know we got to the and what a brilliant ending by the oh way oh my gosh which I attribute to great writing yes more than anything else and it, and it, and it goes to my point again if I do have a point, <laughs> which is some of the most affecting moments for me in the movie had nothing to do with the puppetry, had nothing to do with the effects. But setting that aside for a moment, I want to come back to that. Cool. I, I hear you on that, and I almost wish there was more camp now that you mention it. I, I, I think that might have made it even more enjoyable, especially with someone like Kurt Russell, who, of course, is you know Snake Plissken and Jack Oh, I'm not gonna remember his name from Big Trouble Little China. Yeah, um, Burton, Jack Burton. Nice. Y- you know, I and sometimes seeing Kurt Russell run around uh, at night on the on the camp at the base, uh, there was a little bit of Jack Burton in there, and uh, I kind of I kind of longed for a wink at the camera that I didn't get. But I respect you know, that wasn't what they were going for. But I think it would have made everything feel a little more like we're all in this together then we're all trying really, really hard to believe that this is actually happening. So you're a fan of the camp, uh, and I get it. And, and there's the, you know, there's John Carpenter f- uh, fans who are a fan of the camp. And, and without a doubt, he does camp really, really well. This one, though, I'm so glad there's no camp. There, there's humor ever in it, but I mean, what works about this film in a pretty brilliant way, for me, and this is writing and filmmaking, is the idea that we are dropped into a world. We're never introduced into the world. There's never a character who goes, oh, well, that's Windows. He operates the 
communication devices. Oh, there's the cook. He's kind of crazy. You know, we, we just we're just in there with these guys who have lived together for we don't know how many months, but they they've already got their own setup. There's a, there's a, already this rather complicated relationship made up of who's meant to be a leader, but is clearly not a leader. The guy who operates a helicopter, who probably has no official rank in, in this setup, but is clearly, uh, even more so as the film goes on, looked to as the leader. The, the, the doctors and the uneducated, and they're all kind of living together in this isolation. That's so brilliant, and it works so well. I, I love that. I love that feeling of isolation. I love that feeling of, well, there's a bit of nihilism to the whole thing. In some ways, you know, um, I, I think it could be argued that one of the most Lovecraftian films ever made <laughs> would be The Thing. But don't you think Lovecraft, in, in a way, is an expression of camp? Well, no. In the same way, I suppose what I'm saying is, and, you, and, and we can have a separate conversation about Lovecraft, but it seems to me that... This movie, because it embraces the 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 thing so overtly and explicitly, make you know it leaves nothing to the imagination. It invites a desire for a campy wink at the camera. If it were to have hidden all of that, if it were just a psychological thriller and you never knew who was the alien, it was going around killing people. I, I think that would have been a more interesting movie, and I wouldn't have been left feeling a little bit sort of uh, let down uh, because of the campy effects that were not, that would seem to be part of a different movie. Ah, I, 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 I hear you. I'm sure you're moving your mouth. I'm, uh, but this, <laughs> it's just, just squawks is all this coming. <laughs> just whistles and squawks. <laughs> um, so you felt that you saw the strings. You, you, you saw that you're peeking behind the curtain there. So, but let's let's talk about the moments, some of the key moments of, of, of horror in this. So we've talked about the isolation. We, we seem to both like that. The cinematography plays into that really, really well. The beginning of winter, all that. We, we talked about the paranoia. That works very well. Who can you trust? And it turns out that although we're kind of in Kurt Russell's side, we're kind of on his shoulder for most of the time, there's a, a big chunk in, at the end of the second act where all of a sudden, where'd Kurt go? Mm-hmm. We don't know what happened. Mm-hmm. That, and we never know. But let's talk about some of, of, of the key moments of horror, and may, maybe in some ways the biggest scene. The dog scene we've talked about uh, a little bit, but the scene when Kurt Russell basically has everyone tied up and he's doing the blood test. Yes. That's that's pretty brilliant. Um, it was brilliant up until the guy basically eats the other guy's head and starts swinging him around the room like a mannequin. Up until that moment, I was in it. I was totally engaged and on the edge of my seat, and this is what I mean. Then he goes too far. He goes into this realm of what to me was kind of silly and way too long, dwelling way too long on the puppetry, that just took me out of it. So there's an interesting thing, the going too far. This, so I'm, I'm thinking about the, the next film that we're going to be watching too. So horror does something that I think you, you don't like. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the horror. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also something that I remember with scripts that you and I and Chris wrote where Chris would sometimes say, uh, these are comedy scripts, and Chris would go, oh, and you pushed it too far. We got to pull this back. You know that the, the joke you 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 took that joke to an uncomfortable place. <laughs> 
but but horror it strives to do that that it pushes things too far now it's interesting the the film that you're describing of like what would be a film uh, the thing if we never maybe there wasn't even a monster we just never knew but the fear of the monster turned these people on each other in the same sort of paranoia and self-destruction that we see in the film but there is no alien or if there is it's it's questionable it's never seen that that would be an interesting film that four to five people would see <laughs> and, apparently only four to five saw this one so well it's it's done pretty well buddy all right in history <laughs> but it, 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 this movie i for me like it's able to do that which would be a wild stage drama that what you're talking about, and I think interesting, but also give the genre popcorn of uh, body horror and alien horror and seeing these crazy things. You're not entertained by that, which is kind of like seeing a band and you you hate the drummer. It's it's hard to appreciate the the guitar solo. <laughs> well, no, it's easy to appreciate the guitar solo because the drummer's not playing in that moment, right? Which, yeah, which is the perfect sort of metaphor because again that scene was super affecting and when i can't remember the name of the character but the the character who turns out to be the thing starts having those convulsions and you know everyone's freaking out i i, I was still in it. it it was just it was when his head splits open and eats another guy's head and then starts swinging him around like a mannequin that's when i was like oh okay mm, that's mm. what this is I see. It, it it this is an interesting thing. Like it, I think this is a an ongoing thing in in horror. So John Carpenter, he used to have conversations when he was in film school, uh, where he would discuss like the the monster problem, right? And this was a problem that sort of developed in horror movies. They started talking about this like in the nineteen fifties. That basically you'd have a setup of a, a horror movie, and you're like oh gosh, something's hunting people. Oh no, oh no, oh no, and. We, we never see the monster, but we see like a hand or we see someone get dragged away. And then at the end of the movie, you have to show the monster. Like, oh my gosh, we have to show the monster. And the monster never lived up to the hype. Hmm. It was just some guy in an outfit. And, and that was a constant thing, which is why Dark Star, the monster is basically a, a beach ball. <laughs> Like a, a painted beach ball, and and of course, why well, in Halloween it's it's a, a figure in a mask, and and why also in films like for example in The Exorcist, freaking decided to cut in the original release the 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 little girl crawling backwards on her arms and legs down the stairs because they're like you know what if you're if you're risking that there's this line of between horror and the laughable yeah and uh, and that has. That has been a continual thing, like Hereditary, which came out a couple of years ago, and I saw it at a festival. Terrifying film. One of the more terrifying film experiences of my life was watching that film. Uh, about halfway through, I sunk down to my chair, and I just I could hardly move. Now, when it came out to popular audiences, there were talks that people started were laughing. Hmm. That people were laughing at, at these moments like, oh, it just went too far. It just went too far. And I, I think there is sort of that place of like, well... That is the risk of horror and the, and probably the risk of tragedy of, you know, you're, you're pushing as far as you can. And um, and it, there's not really a line in the sand. It's a moving line of what's going to be too far or not too far. And I and I can certainly respect that. And, and certainly I think Jaws, as a kind of classic example of this, is, you know, maybe the best example of of withholding the monster until late in the film and I would argue that ultimately it is disappointing. When Jaws eats the boat captain, it's uh, it's a bit of a letdown. It, there's there's some blood and gore, but it's pretty clearly a mechanical shark. And so mm. I can see how that is a 
a perennial problem, especially in movies, say, made 10 years ago and earlier, that, that the monster is going to be a letdown because our imagination is always going to top whatever a filmmaker can come up with, or, or at least often can come up with. You know, I, I have watched the odd horror film, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I do recall seeing Paranormal Activity mm. at home, not in a theater, and it scared the crap out of me. I did not enjoy the experience because I was so freaked out <laughs> by that experience. And you never see a monster. Mm-hmm. There's never that moment of potential letdown because it's always in my imagination. But that's, that's, yeah, no, that's, I think that's a, a very good example. I will say, and I, so moving away from the effects, because I, I, I hear what you're saying, and it's hard to hear someone wrong again and again. So. <laughs> Um, but we stumbled on upon Lovecraft, and I think there's something kind of interesting in this, and, and maybe also why I think this film needed to be what it is, as opposed to, you know, is there even an alien? So, you know, Lovecraft, and I, I think I'm probably thinking, you know, Mountains of Madness for him on this one. One of Lovecraft's most famous uh, works. It's uh, almost a novel, a length short story, and in it, a, a, a group of explorers are go to the, I believe it's the Antarctic. And they find the remnants of an ancient civilization so much older than humanity. And they find these monsters that are made by this remnants and this whole kind of history. And part of what it is, uh, what, what Lovecraft described is cosmic horror. This idea that part of the story is humans don't matter much. That we're basically a blip and a pretty insignificant blip in the cosmic history and the cosmic setup. There are, are much more powerful forces, and, uh, and even our Earth, which we think of as our realm, compared to the ancient life that has lived here, we're nothing. And, and that seems a little bit that comes into this in, in, uh, in The Thing. The Thing is, uh, is getting a little bit like, oh, it would be so easy to wipe us out. That, that that that's there too. That the part of a cosmic car is like our own identity is uh, it, it can be lost at any moment. Right, and I think that's what was compelling about the movie for me. It, it, and to be clear, much of the movie is compelling. I like all of the. It was an incredible cast. Oh yeah, I like all of the actors uh, in this movie. Oh my god, what a cast! And and an early great example of diversity casting, where you don't just kill off the characters of color early. Right. Um, where someone like Keith David uh, gets to share the screen with Kurt Russell in the final frame. He is so cool in this movie, too. Everyone, I thought everyone, and everyone was a distinct character. This is why I'm praising the screenwriting um, as the strongest element for me in the movie, and maybe a close second would be the cinematography, because it's so compellingly written. It's not overwritten. The dialogue is to the point, but also can be very emotional, Again, all the characters are very well-drawn, real people. They all sound different. They all have different responses to these situations. And it's a lot of characters uh, to sort of manage that, to service all those characters and to service them well, is pretty incredible and admirable in terms of the filmmaking. And I think thematically, it's incredibly compelling. I, I loved the the touch, you know, when they find the the spacecraft at the Norwegians' camp or nearby, and this indication that it's been there hundreds of thousands of years, mm. and, and connecting to that point you just made with Lovecraft, uh, the idea of the scale of it and our vulnerability 
as a species. I mean, all of that was compelling. All of that I loved. I, I suppose what I'm saying ultimately in my critique and why I came out of it feeling more like a shrug than a, oh my God, that was brilliant, was exactly what we've been talking around, which is the overtly horror elements. And I think, I think it's because I, and you know, this is our tagline. I don't love horror. <laughs> so, so it's, it's like, it's a really good movie except for the horror bit. <laughs> okay. That's, that's fair enough. Um, I will say I, I love, and I remember watching as a kid and when I watched it again, uh, uh in preparation for this, Wilford Brimley in this movie is so freaking scary. He's so freaking scary. And, uh, he's of course the first one to realize that the absolute danger that we're in mm-hmm. it seem, seems to be the smartest person in this group. He realizes the dangers that he's in. And then we first see him destroying the, the radio equipment, destroying the helicopter, trapping, trapping this group here. But then we learn, oh no, no, he, he's been infected by the thing. It's bizarre and strange. We, I love the moment when they go out to see him uh, in his small little tool shed where they're keeping him trapped and he's just sitting there at a table eating from a can. There's a noose hung up, yeah. just hang yeah. in there. And he's like, <laughs> right. I don't, I don't want to be out here anymore. I don't want to, <laughs> you know, I, I want to come back in. I want to come back in that, that exchange between uh, Wilford Brimley and Kurt Russell is so good and so cold. Uh, and then, and, and that, which leads me to another thing I think is fabulous about the horror of this film is the ending. So the ending, as I understand it, they actually filmed a more clear ending. I know there was a, a, a sort of a stop action sequence of one of the last people to die, uh, which actually you don't see him. The cook, I'm trying to remember his name right now, the guy on the roller skates, he sort of wanders away while Kurt Russell's setting up explosions and we don't know what happens to him. We, we don't see him die. Right, yeah. But what I understand is that they filmed it and John Carpenter was like, you know what? They showed it to a test audience and they laughed. It didn't work. Cut it. So they just cut it and left it more ambiguous, which is probably playing into what you're saying, that that works more effectively. What what I find, like, the horror that they did, and I find this so ballsy um, for, you know, the 80s, 1982, when people are watching E.T. and thinking, oh, how cute, and you know what, love, love can cross the stars, and that's all that counts. <laughs> it's so amazing. And then this movie... It's just like, hey, the, our only success is maybe we made it too hot for it to go to sleep. Could be that one of us is uh, one of those things, and we're just going to die here. <laughs> we're just going to die. Yeah. Even if we kind of win, we're just going to die here. There's not a lot of movies, especially popular movies with mass releases, that have that kind of ending. I completely agree. It's bold yeah. and respectable mm-hmm. and existentially terrifying. Yes, and 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 just beautiful. I just wish the rest of the movie were actually scary. <laughs> How could you not be scared when the guy gets his hands ripped off by the chest? Oh my gosh, it's, it's terrifying. All I think was, oh, the guy from Saint Elsewhere. <laughs> it's just all, all of it is terrifying. All of it is terrifying, and and, and even I mean, gosh, to even to the credit of the, at the very very beginning of the film that. The first interaction, basically, we see is someone with a gun screaming to other people in a language that can't be understood. They cannot understand each other. And there is a third power in there. It's, that's remarkable. That's, that's a, it a is. remarkable. It is. Yeah. Wonderful. Absolutely. One, one point of, of story logic, uh, which, is, which is troubling me, and, and, and it's one of those you just sort of go, oh, well, you know, let it go. Uh, so the, the thing can take on 
the appearance of any other living organism, presumably. Yes. yes. Through some sort of DNA cloning, cellular cloning. Right. Uh, what left me wondering, though, was, but do they have their memories and personalities? And wouldn't you notice? I mean, wouldn't one way to tell if you were the thing is if, you know, let's, uh, you know, wh where were you last week? I, I don't, it, maybe it can replicate parts of the brain that store memory and, and personality. Well, it seems to. I mean, in, in the in the ones that be, uh, are transformed, there's definitely, uh, you know, um, I wish I could remember his name right now, but the, the fellow whose chest opens up, whose head becomes yes. a spider. Mm -hmm. um, he, his, his character, he's interacting with the others. In fact, he, he's got kind of an interesting moment because he's actually seeing, you know, something outside and he yells for the others to join him. It's like, oh, is Wilford Brimley running outside? And he, he yells and he seems to be like, oh, I'm having a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a little unclear whether he even knows he's been infected. Right. So he could still be himself. But the thing is also inside him. Right. It's the it's the one time in the film that the question is raised, like, do, would you know yourself if you've been if you're now really just a, a clone of yourself? Well, and again, to me, that's the brilliance. If there is brilliance in this movie, and I think there is, is the existential terror. Yeah. And, and that is beautifully rendered in the story. I see. So you're saying the existential terror works, the character paranoia terror that works, but the the the, the more special effects driven, quote unquote, horror for you falls flat. Indeed, though, I will say uh, your point is well taken that if I see it in the same context as I see a movie like Star Wars, you know, there can be some grace there. And I do like the fact that that intentional or not, uh, we've, we're sort of moving through time. Uh, with Night of the Living Dead, Chainsaw Massacre, and now The Thing sort of hitting every decade. Uh, who knows what we have in store next? Aha! We we have been moving through time and also a little bit moving through budget. So that's that's been kind of a fun thing that we've been doing, moving through through budgets of like the, the movies. This is, of course, the highest budget uh, of any of the films that we've watched so far. And just so that you know, it... So, like I mentioned, it got very popular or more popular when it came out on VHS. It... It spawned all kinds of, like, a, there's a board game, like a role-playing game that a lot of people play now, based on the thing. Hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, I know there's a video game. I've never played it. There was also a sequel, or actually it was a prequel, called The Thing, that came out in 2011. Not to be confused with The Thing. Right. So when it was coming out, people were like, it's, oh, oh they, the people thought it was going to be a remake. I'm like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. But uh, actually, it was a prequel. It's about the Norwegians. Oh. It's what happened at the Norwegian base. That sounds interesting to me. I know. I know. I've never seen it. But uh, yeah, I'd like to see so, it. So as we sort of wrap up here, you've already maybe indicated, but did you have a scene that you could throw under the bus? Is there a scene you don't like? Yes. I, I, I can't. Just to go back, I, I love this movie. I, <laughs> and, and not as a 13-year-old. <laughs> As a 46-year-old man, I, I love this movie and uh, I almost everything about it. It's it's just so good and uh, so tonally consistent. Uh, it's just yummy in my mouth. Uh, you just got us an explicit <laughs> lyric on iTunes. <laughs> this thing is yummy in my mouth. But uh, the, the one moment that I do wish that Carpenter had decided to cut is the spaceship at the very, very beginning, mm. uh, moving through space. I think it would have been so much more uh, tantalizing if we were like the members uh, of the base, uh, base number four, were discovering this horror as it happens 
as opposed to an early reveal of like, by the way, it's an alien from out of space because our characters don't find that out till later. So yeah, that would be the one thing. How about how about you? What's a scene that you love? Uh, and there are, there are a few that again genuinely affecting great characters. But I do think my favorite scene is the last one, mm. that final scene. And and as I was watching it, and as it faded to black, I realized, oh, of course I've heard about this ending, but I was so caught up in the moment, sort of catching up to my own realization of, oh my gosh, this is how he's going to end the movie. <laughs> uh, that's brilliant. Um, it's so bold, so risky that I just have a lot of respect for the way that it closes on those two mm-hmm. characters. Mm-hmm. So um, next week. Okay, next week. All right, so this was, oh man, I get, this is hard. So many films. I'm narrating it down to three. Do I have to choose? <laughs> no, no, you don't have to choose, but I'm going to ask you some questions which will help me decide, okay? Okay. Right. So uh, one of the ones I was thinking of is is a film that does a very good job of not showing you the monster and uh, the, the main monster and, and is a more it's – it's in the 2000s. So I thought that might be kind of interesting. Okay. But then I did like the fact that we were moving through time. So another one that I know I've mentioned to you before that I was thinking of is The Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. Uh, which uh, or a Nightmare on Elm Street, which is a uh, a fantastic film. And have you seen before? You must have, of course. Right? When I was a kid, yes. When you're a kid, but then I was also thinking about at some point I want to venture with you into what uh, you know art house horror, uh, <laughs> a term I'm not really wild about, but like Hereditary, which we mentioned earlier in the episode, or The Witch, uh, fall into this category. They're usually like horror movies that that don't necessarily have um, the sort of genre pop moments, or or if they do, there's a lot more sort of character based uh, horror in them. So I'm trying to decide which one would be more most interesting. <laughs> well, uh, can I help? Yeah, yeah. Do you have an opinion? Here's here's what I just just putting it out there. Uh, if we wanted to go again, sort of decade by decade, Elm Street seems like a good choice. Because then also I could revisit it and uh, see if it's still terrible. Because I do recall being terrified by that movie. But I'm open to whatever, whatever you no, think. No, that's funny. That's exactly what I was thinking. Elm Street. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, you know, Elm Street. Oh, my gosh. I'm just like, so excited to talk about it. Uh- uh, I, re- <laughs> I recall it being terrifying yes. and giving, giving me nightmares. Yes. So we shall see if it triggers. And it could be this, again— this whole podcast is just my own giant defense mechanism that I say I don't like horror because it is so affecting and it terrifies me and I'm just not capped. <laughs> so this may be the first real test. If it triggers some childhood bedwetting terror, uh, then I'll have you to blame. <laughs> uh, and that's episode three of The Horror uh, Owen, where can people find you on social media? Uh, you can find me uh, on Facebook or on Twitter. Twitter's probably the best. Uh, Owen uh, underscore Edgerton. Uh, that's O-W-E-N underscore E-G-E-R-T-O-N. And you can find me on Twitter, at Russell Sharman. Uh, we'll look forward to talking about Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, is it a nightmare, the nightmare? It's a nightmare on Elm Street. A nightmare on Elm Street next week. Uh, thanks so much for uh, helping me fill this blind spot of John Carpenter's The Thing. I am glad I watched it. Oh, I'm so glad you watched it. I, I, I think and when you watch it the next several times, I think you'll be able to appreciate it more. Well, I've got the uh, iTunes rental for another 24 hours. So get, we'll see what get happens. Get to it. Get to it. <laughs> <laughs>